Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. It's only one chapter in Jude. And so what we've done all summer long is done a verse-by-verse study of the book of James and the book of Jude. And so this will be our second week of the book of Jude, but part 11 of the entire series. And if you missed part one of the book of Jude or any other parts of the book of James, you can go to our podcast and download it for free, as well as go to FCCGA.com to download it there. So Jude. Verse 1. So Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. Now we said when studying the books of the Bible, it is important to know the author, the audience, when it was written, and the occasion for the writing. When studying the books of the Bible, it's important to know the author, the audience, when it was written, and the occasion for the writing. Why? It gives you context. So when you study the Bible on a book-to-book basis, you can have the context of why it was written and what was it, why the Holy Ghost wanted it to be written at that time. So we said the book of Jude was written between A.D. 60 and A.D. 80. We said that Jude is the youngest brother of Jesus. Jude in the Greek form is the name Judah. Who is the audience of the book of Jude? We said it's written to all believers. How do we know that? It says, to them that are sanctified by God, and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. That is every single believer. We said sanctified means made holy, set apart. Preserved means to keep, to guard, to attend to carefully. The New Living Translation says they're kept safe in the arms of Jesus. And the importance of being kept by Jesus is, one of a, is a theme that's in this book, whether you get it tonight or next week, because the thing is, Jesus can keep you. Second Peter 2 says it this way, that God knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. So it doesn't matter what surrounds you or who's around you or what temptation is around you. God knows how to keep you if you let him. And we can be kept safe in the care and the arms of Jesus. The word called means invited, chosen. So you are invited, chosen, and set apart by God, attended to, and kept safe in the care of Jesus. So Jude goes on and says, mercy unto you, and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation. Common salvation means our shared salvation, meaning belonging to many people. So he says, this is what I wanted to write you about, the salvation that we all share. He says, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort unto you. So he says, I wanted to write to you about one thing, but it was more pressing that I write you about this issue. And what was the issue? And exhort and encourage, I'm begging you, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. So previously when we started studying the book of Jude, he said, we said earnestly contend for the faith means to fight intensely for what we believe. Because what we believe for, believe came from God himself and he gave it to his people forever. So why do they have to fight for what they believe? 
The answer to this question reveals the occasion for the writing, which is found in verse 4. It says, For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus. So what does all that mean? He says, I'm writing to you to contend, to fight passionately for the faith because there are some people who crept into your meetings, to your church. It also means, another other translation says, they infiltrated our ranks, gaining entrance secretly by a side door. They wormed their way into your churches, the New Living Translation says. That phrase, crept in unaware, means to enter secretly and to settle in alongside. So when these people entered in, it wasn't obviously known. It wasn't obviously apparent. It was secret agents. See, the thing is, sometimes Satan can't stop the church from the outside. So he sends people on the inside. So he sent these people to infiltrate the ranks to stop what this church was doing. Notice how Jude described them. He said before he describes them, before old ordained to this condemnation, meaning their punishment and judgment were prophesied about a long time ago. So these people are about to live lives, even though the Bible said a long time ago, this will be the result if you live this type of life. So they're ungodly men. That phrase means they are irreverent, destitute of reverential awe towards God. Or in other words, not only do they not respect God, they act against what God commands and desires. Because they turn the message of grace into lasciviousness, which means unbridled lust, being promiscuous and unprincipled in sexual matters. So these ungodly people turn the teaching of grace into teaching people they can live a life of having sex with whoever they want, doing whatever they feel like doing or whatever feels right to them sexually. So they crept into the church and got into a place where they became leaders and influencers and teachers. And they began to teach things that were contrary to what Jesus taught them. You see Jew deal with this. He says, you remember what the apostles taught us. Don't forget these things. This is what came from Jesus. Don't listen to these people who crept in and teaching you something else. He says, they deny the Lord. That means they reject, they refuse, they don't accept. So these are not just believers with bad doctrine. These are people sent by Satan who don't accept Jesus, yet they go to church with you. And notice it uses the word Lord twice. First Lord there means is defined as master or absolute ruler. The second Lord is supreme in authority. So I like the wordplay Jude uses in this verse. In verse 4, he points out a lifestyle where these people's bodies, lusts, and feelings are their God and the master of their lives. Compared to letting God and Jesus being our absolute ruler and Lord. So he shows two different people one verse. One group, whatever feels right, is their God. The other group, Jesus is their God. So the occasion of this letter is to combat false teaching and encourage believers to stand strong in what they believe. So Jude wrote this letter so believers would stand strong and know how to fight against what was taught them. Because one of the things you talk, look in the Old Testament... 
when it talks about a shepherd and sheep. It talks about different sheep wandering off and eating trash. Do you know the thing about sheep? They eat anything. And do you know what sometimes baby believers do? They eat anything. Babies in the natural, if you leave them alone, whatever they can get to goes into the mouth. So what do parents do? They have baby-proofed everything. They run around to make sure nothing harmful gets into the baby's mouth. That's kind of the job of the pastor. When he looks out for your soul, because we're like, what are you eating when you're not at church? And so these people have been eating a dangerous teaching. And so now the Holy Ghost got to call Jesus' baby brother and says, I need you to deal with this. Because Jude also was an itinerant teacher. He went around with his wife teaching and preaching the word of God. So the Holy Ghost had him write the message. So notice how he begins it in Jude 1, 5. He says, I want to put you in remembrance. Now, I noticed something very interesting about this phrase when I was looking at it in the different definitions. Because normally when it says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, I put you in remembrance, he's like, well, I'm just wanting to remind somebody about something. How many of you would like, if you read that phrase, that's what you would get from it. But when I was looking at the different definitions, it says, I want to quietly remind you. So Jude in this letter is not yelling. He's coming up beside them and said, hey, I need to remind you about something. So he's not even angry. He's not even loud. He says, let's sit down and have a conversation because you need to remember these things. You once knew this, so that means they forgot about it. So what did they forget? He's about to give them three different Old Testament examples that connects to what they're going through. It's how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. Go to Exodus chapter 3. Let's look at what that means. Exodus chapter 3. Let's look at the story of Exodus, especially about the people's salvation or deliverance and their destruction. Because if you want to be a great student of the Bible, when you see phrases, especially in the New Testament, it is written, go back to where it's written. If you see stories that are referred to, go back to that story and read that. So Exodus chapter 3, starting with verse 6. Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land unto a good land, a large unto a land flowing with milk and honey, unto the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, and the Amorites, and the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, a whole lot of ites. Now, therefore... Behold, the cry of the children of Israel is coming to me, and I have seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you unto Pharaoh, that you may bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. 
So God moving on behalf of the children of Israel is an act of love and an act of love towards Abraham. So it's not just a love towards them, because he told Abraham 400 years before that, that here's what's going to happen in the future. Your descendants are going to get in trouble, but don't be stressed about that, because I'm going to take care of them. And I'm going to bring them out, and I'll make sure they're taken care of. So because Abraham was faithful, he set up for those after him to receive the blessing of God. If Jesus tarries, you should live such a life that all those who come after you should be blessed because you told Jesus yes. It shouldn't be the prevailing conversation in your family, what about generational curses? It should be, what about generational blessings? Instead of teaching them, well, yep, everybody gets heart problems at 38, it should be, hey, by the time you hit 40, you can have another million dollars coming your way. You just need to know how to handle it right. So God said, I came down to bring them up. Doesn't that sound like what Jesus did? He came down to bring us up. Psalm 105, 37 talks about when God brought them out. It says, he brought them forth also with silver and gold, and there was not one feeble or sick person among their tribes. So he didn't just deliver them from Egypt. He healed every single person. There were people there who were young, and there are people there who were old, and none of them were sick, and none of them were weak. God had to heal them because they had a journey ahead of them. How are you going to take a bunch of sick people to the promised land? They can't make it through the desert. How are you going to take a lot of people whose bodies have decayed because of old age? How are they going to journey through the desert? That journey was only three weeks, but I don't know about you, I'm in good health, but three weeks walking through a desert, that sounds like a big deal. So he healed every single one, strengthened every single one when they took over the Passover dinner, which is a foreshadowing of communion. There's power when you take communion. There's power when you access your covenant with Jesus. And they were healed. They were strengthened. And then he says, you know what? People have robbed you of what belongs to you for 400 years, so I'm going to give it back to you in a day. So it doesn't matter what people have done to you, what they've done to your past or to your ancestors. God can make it up in a day. He didn't say get mad at them. You just love them. Because he said, go up to your slave master and tell them I want that outfit. You know, you just bought that last week. You didn't know, but you bought it for me. I want that. Yep, I want those rings look good. Give me the gold. Give me the silver. Yeah, that outfit looks pretty cool too, and I'll be on my way. You know what the Bible says is God gave them favor. So they gave everything they requested. So if they didn't request, they didn't get anything. Maybe some of you don't have what you want in your life because you don't request big enough. And God wants to give you favor, but you got to believe enough to ask. So he brings them out, taking them to the promised land. Everything looks good. He brought them out of Egypt, but they didn't get Egypt out of them. So as they're leaving Egypt, they began to act like they were still slaves. They began to say, oh, don't you miss the food we ate in Egypt? Wasn't it so good? Wasn't it such those good old days when we were slaves? Wait a minute. You were just crying for 400 years. 
But now you're complaining because you don't know how God's going to meet your needs. See, it's like this way. You knew how messed up your life was before you got saved. Then you get saved and you experience the joy of the Lord and the zeal of God. All these great things are happening, but you run into your first problem and go, wasn't it better when I was out living my life? They're doing the same thing. It says they began to murmur, which means they, began, they complained and came to a stop. This happens 10 different times, yet those different times God provides and takes care of them. They go, well, what are we going to eat? Fine. I'm going to cause Krispy Kreme donuts to rain down from heaven, except you ain't going to get the calories for it. It's going to be exactly what you need to march. How many of you like to eat Krispy Kremes every day and get no weight from it? That God sent Krispy Kremes from heaven, and it was the exact nutrients that you needed. And then he says, if that's not enough, oh, you want some meat? I'm going to make some fried chicken fly in. And it's healthy enough to get you to where you need to go. Come on, this is like the perfect setup. You're thirsty? Smack that rock. There we go. Yet they complained. Yet they murmured. Like we do because something doesn't go right like we want it to. So it happens ten different times. God takes them to the promised land. They're on the edge of the promised land, the edge of what God promised them, and he sends the 12 spies, go, go, and come back and preach to them exactly what I said is true. Two do, ten give an evil report. Say, yeah, everything God said is true, but. Your but gets you in trouble all the time. And he says, but there's giants in the land. The cities are really walled. We be not able to take these giants. We are grasshoppers in our own sight and in their sight. So they says, we can't do it. We're not able. Shock to God that there are giants in the land and the city has a wall. No, he knew that already. They were enabled to take the land. But they did not believe God and they did not believe God loved them. Because they kept saying, God brought us into the wilderness to die. He brought us in the wilderness to kill us. So it says, would God we have died in Egypt? Would God we have died? Would God we have died? Would God we have died? That's all they kept saying as they complained, as they murmured, and they came to a stop. So Israel believes the testimony of the ten non-believers. And it says the whole nation began to cry, and they cried all night long. It was a national Pity party. Imagine the sounds of millions of people crying because they don't believe God. Verse 2, and all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron, and the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God we had died in this wilderness? Wherefore has the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, and let us return into Egypt. Let's stop following God. Stop following this Moses dude. Let's pick a new leader and let's go back to the world. Egypt is always a symbol of the world. We can't, we don't believe God can bring us any farther so we're going to find someone who will lead us back to what we knew. 
Joshua and Caleb try to step in. They speak words of faith. It says, we're able. Don't sin against God. Believe. God will take us into the promised land. So they're preaching faith. They're speaking faith. They say, go kill those faith people. So now they go from complaining, murmuring, and crying to trying to kill the people who actually do what God wants them to do. And you know what happens after that? The glory of God appears. And God is talking to Moses. He's ignoring millions of people and says, I'll deal with you in a minute. Moses, your people are tripping. When you look through the law, God and Moses have interesting conversations. There's times when God says to Moses, those are your people. And Moses responds, did I nurse them? They are your people. That is bad when God and your pastor are upset with you. They're like, no, they're yours. No, they're yours. They're trying to go, who's going to take them today? And God asked Moses a question in Numbers 14. He says, how long will these people provoke me? Early this summer, I looked up that word, and that word actually means despise. He says, how long will these people hate me? What have I done to cause them to hate me? I took them out of Egypt. I healed them. I gave them everything they've never had before. I took them to the promised land, yet they hate me. Notice how God's defining hating him for those who have a covenant with them by not believing him. How long will these people not trust me? What have I done not to earn their trust? And so God tells Moses, look, we can start it all over again. We can deal with them. We'll start over again. The nation comes from you. Moses, look, God, you know, if you do that, Egypt's going to say you weren't strong enough to take them to the promised land. So for my sake, I ask that you forgive them. Do you know what God says? I have forgiven them according to your word. You know how easy God forgives people. One man asked for millions of people to be forgiven. God said, done. And he says, I'll forgive them. They won't get the judgment they deserve. But they won't go into the promised land. They're going to walk around 40 years. One year for each day those spies were gone. And they will die in the wilderness. So they won't have the privilege of long life. They won't have the privilege of experience God's best. They will be disinherited because they did not believe. So Jude said, I want to remind you quietly about the people God saved and how they were destroyed afterwards. So how did these people get destroyed? They were disinherited. What was their destruction? They walked around living normal lives, dying normal deaths, not experienced God's best, although they were saved. How many saved people walk around living normal lives, not getting God's best? Go back to Jew. Their destruction was their disinheritance, and walking around in the wilderness was shortened life. Their destruction came because they did not believe, and they turned from God. So let's go away from him, and let's kill the people that stand for him. Jude 1, verse 6, he gives them a second example. So he's already talked with the children of Israel. He says, now I want to remind you about the angels which kept not their first estate. 
but left their own habitation, he has reserved an everlasting change under darkness until the judgment of the great day. First estate means their original place, their principality. So Israel left the place they were supposed to be. They're at the promised land, yet they turn around and says, we can't do this. Let's go somewhere we're not supposed to be. So now he talks about these original angels that left their place. So let's look at them. Go to Revelation chapter 12. Why and how do they leave their original place? Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. It's a misconception that the entire book of Revelation is about the future. When you read the book of Revelation, it says clearly it addresses things in the past, things in the present, and things in the future, things to come. So Revelation 12, 7 through 9, talks about the ancient past. Because you have to rightfully define the word of truth. Because in that same chapter, you go from the ancient past to the future and back again. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. And the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceives the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Second Peter 2 forces, for if God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into change of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. What was their sin? Their rebellion. Satan deceived them. He told them that he should be God. You read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, it talks about Satan. And he thought he was, should be God because how good he looked. This, is there anyone more beautiful than me? Talk about the ultimate vanity. And he says he got so full of himself because he had instruments built into him. So he didn't make music. He was music. Wherever he went, the best music flowed. He had authority among the angels. He had people who followed him. But then he got caught up in all the things that God gave him and began to thought that he was the something. Then Isaiah says iniquity was found in him. He began to plot his rebellion against God. He began to say, I will be like the Most High. I will put my throne above God's throne. He was saying, I'm going to war with God. And he was so deceived on the inside, he thought he would win. So he convinces a, thor a third of the angels of heaven to follow him. So they go to war. Michael's on God's side. Two-thirds of the angels are fighting. A war is going on. But Jesus sums up how the war went. He says, I saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He's like, I'm coming to get you. Bam. Did not work out like he thought. So Jesus says, I want to quietly remind you about those who used to be angels. Now they're demons who are reserved for judgment against that great day. The great day of judgment is when Satan and the demons and those who side with them are cast into the lake that burns with fire. You see, hell is not forever. Hell is a temporary holding place. The lake of fire is forever. Because I want to remind you about the children of Israel. 
and it reminds you about these people who didn't hold their first place, these angels that didn't hold their first place. Then he goes Jude 1.7, a third example. Even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. The phrase giving themselves over to fornication means to be utterly unchaste. This is no sexual control whatsoever. Going after strange flesh means every type of sexual immorality. Nothing was off limits. This is what pervaded Sodom and Gomorrah to the point when two angels showed up to rescue Lot. They said, bring those two guys who showed up out so that we may rape them. It was so pervasive in this city that Lot had two daughters. They were married. And he said, hey, they're virgins. Whoa, 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 whoa. They are married, yet they're still virgins. Not even once. This is how full of it that city was. So I want to remind you about Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, why was Sodom and Gomorrah judged? A lot of people say, well, yeah, the sexual immorality. That was just part of the sin. Ezekiel 16, 49 through 50 says, now this was the iniquity of your system, Sodom. See, God is dealing with his people. And he says, you guys are sinning so bad, a Sodom is your sister. And he says, you were doing worse than Sodom, so Sodom's your little sister. Now, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride. They were proud. We know proud comes before a fall. We know pride was the original sin of the enemy. They had plenty of food and comfortable security. That wasn't a problem. But didn't support the poor and needy. So the sin wasn't that they had an overabundance of food and they were secure. The sin was you had more than enough and you didn't help anybody. Another translation said, the poor was right outside of your gates and you did nothing. So you're proud people. You are a selfish people. They were haughty and did detestable things. That's the sexual abominations before me. So I removed them when I saw this. So it wasn't just their sexual immorality. It was their pride. It was their selfishness. What is it? Everything is about me. I do what I want, when I want. I don't care about anybody else. And whoever gets in my way, oh well. You might think, well, Sodom and Gomorrah never had a good example. Yes, they did. Abraham lived right around the corner. We said, well, they didn't know about Abraham. Yes, they did. Abraham saved their lives. Abraham and his army rescued their kings and all those who kept captives. They had a chance to turn to God. God empowered one man to save all of Sodom and Gomorrah and the metro area. Yet they didn't turn. Abraham's nephew Lot lived there. And it says he was just, he was righteous. I mean, he did, he lived a good life. So they had a witness in their city. 
And the thing is, says Lot got a place of influence. So he had a place of influence, yet they didn't listen to the righteous man in influence. They didn't follow after the righteous man that saved their lives. Although they were saved, they went back to doing what they wanted to do. So in Genesis 18, God comes down to talk to Abraham. He's ending the conversation, and he tells him his plans for Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Genesis 18, verse 20, because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grievous, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is coming to me, and if not, I will know. Whenever God has to say, I will come down, like he did in Egypt and like he did here, it's a sign of visitation. And at a time of visitation is also a time of judgment. It's a time of inspection. The book of Revelation teaches that Jesus goes up and down the churches and he expects the troops. And he said, the cries come up to me for their sin is grievous, which means heavy. Their sin is now heavy. And when the other angels are with God, turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. But look at verse 23 of chapter 18 of Genesis. And Abraham drew near and said, Will you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be fifty righteous within the city. Will you also destroy and not spare the place for the fifty righteous that are therein? That be far from you to do after this man, to slay the righteous with the wicked. That be far from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? What did God say? If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all that place for their sakes. God is not looking to bring judgment on anybody. Jeremiah, I mean, Ezekiel 33, 11 says, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. So God was willing, if I find 50 righteous people, no judgment. See, the thing is, it wasn't just a small city. Sodom and Gomorrah were two twin cities in a metro area. This is a large area. So if I can find 50 people. You know, Abraham's not confident that there's 50 people, so he's working on something. He's interceding. He's standing in the gap between Sodom and Gomorrah and judgment that rightfully should come to them. See, Abraham knew these people really well. Remember, he saved them. He saw how they were living. So he breaks it down. What about 45. What about 40? What about 35? What about 30? What about 20? What about 25? What about 15? He's breaking it down. And then he stops his God if there's 10. Now, Abraham's thinking, there's got to be 10 righteous people. And so he stops too soon. I really believe if Abraham went going, says, if there's one. See, he knew there was one lot. He just had to think, maybe Lot talked to at least nine other people. See, this is a side note. We can't have the Christianity of Lot. Lot was a righteous person living in a wicked culture, yet made no difference. The Christianity of Lot, I like to sum it up in a John Mayer song, you're waiting on the world to change. You're not doing anything, you're just waiting on the world to change. 
There's no change in Sodom and Gomorrah by the presence of a righteous person. Abraham interceded and was holding back judgment. But even though judgment had to come, see, judgment is just another word for harvest. What judgment is, the seeds that you have sown come to pass. Why? The wages of sin is death. In the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see a concept of sin being measured. Remember, God just said their sin is heavy. In Genesis 14, he said the sin of the Amorites is not full yet. Jesus talked about the measuring of the sin. He told this group of people, he says, go ahead and fill up your measure like your fathers. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul talks about them filling their sins all the way up. What happens when that cup of sin is full? What happens when the weight limit is reached? Judgment comes. It's never automatic. It's never one day. It's never one year. It's time after time after time. What is that time going on? Why isn't judgment coming? God wants people to repent. He doesn't rejoice in the death of the wicked. He's giving people an opportunity to repent. What did he do in the day of Noah? Before Noah was even born, Enoch had a child named Methuselah. And the name Methuselah means when he is gone, it will come. So over a thousand years before the flood, God is giving a sign saying judgment is coming, get right. So you know Enoch, even though he's walking with God, he may be nervous every time Methuselah takes a sneeze. Not you. Hey, hey, kid, you okay? Enoch walks with God. He gets raptured. Methuselah lives. He has kids. He has a grandkid named Noah. God tells Noah, the sin has filled the earth. They're violent. The earth is corrupted under the weight of their sin. It's not the people who are corrupt. The sin had corrupted the planet which meant the planet was now experiencing natural disasters because of the sin. Sin can affect regions and corrupt the earth. People are concerned about what pollution can get out, and that can be a concern, but sin pollutes too. And God says judgment has to come. God waited till there was one righteous family left before judgment came. Methuselah died, if you count his years, seven days before the flood. He is giving them up until the last moment. Then he says, Noah, get on the boat. It's time to go. What happens if sin keeps going? If it's never checked? If it's never stopped? It will eventually corrupt or kill God's people. They'll eventually try to kill those who actually live right. And then God has to step in because he has a covenant with his people. So judgment came on Sodom and Gomorrah. And Jude, you can go back to Jude now, says, I want you to remember because Sodom and Gomorrah serves as an example for everybody afterwards 
Peter goes on the same tangent. For everybody afterwards who chooses to live ungodly, Sodom and Gomorrah is their example. He wants you to remember there is a thing called judgment. Remember, they took the teaching of grace and turned it to lasciviousness. So they're saying, yeah, God gave grace, so there's no judgment. Jude says, hey, 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 let me remind you of something. I am Jesus' baby brother, by the way. Judgment still exists, and judgment is coming. That is what he's writing in this letter. So he says in verse 9, likewise these filthy dreamers. So he says, these people who infiltrated your ranks and are teaching this way are in the same category of the children of Israel in the wilderness, the same category of the demons who left their first place, and the same category of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're the same. They said they defile the flesh. They despise dominion, which means they hate and reject authority. They don't like following rules. They want anarchy. They want to do whatever they want to do whenever they want to do it. They don't want anybody to tell them that there is a right way. Right is relative. Truth is relative. Whatever you feel like, what, follow your truth. If it's true to you, it must be true. They despise it. And it says they speak evil of dignitaries. They scoff at angelic beings and supernatural things. It says, yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses. Does not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these speak evil of those things that they know not of. But what they know naturally as brute beasts is they behave like wild animals. And those things, they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them. You have to study the Gospels because every time Jesus said woe, that meant judgment is coming. That was a common phrase of Jesus when he says woe unto them. He says judgment is coming. It is heavy. It is described as a woe. When you read the book of Revelation, the greatest judgment or manifestation of wrath are called woes. So he says, woe unto them. For they have gone in the way of Cain. Now, Cain was a brother of Abel. We know the story of Cain and Abel. But 1 John 3, 12 says, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one or of the devil, and slew his brother. And wherefore slew he him? Because his own works were evil and his brother's righteous. So they're going after the reign of Cain. Not just they're murderers, but they murder people who do right because what they do is wrong. He says, these are the people you have teaching you. And here's where they are taking you. What does he say next about them? They ran greedily after the heir of Balaam for reward. Balaam is a very interesting character in the Old Testament. In Numbers 24 and Deuteronomy 23. This enemy king near the promised land area knew, did not like the children of Israel, did not want to bless them, knew he needed to fight them, so he wanted to hire Balaam to curse them. He went to Balaam like he was a witch doctor, like you could put some voodoo on them. And it says, 
I will pay you a lot of money, money to curse them. He says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'll give you more money. Okay, I'll do it. So for money, Balaam tries to curse God's people. He tries three different times. And that third time, he ends up blessing them. And the king says, I paid you to curse them. Why did you bless them? He says, I tried, but you can't curse whom God has blessed. So you need to stop believing in all the evil words people have spoken about you. Every evil word you hear on the news, every evil thing said to you, they cannot curse whom God has blessed. It doesn't matter what you see on the news. It doesn't matter what you see in your city. You can say that may happen, but it will not affect me. For me and my house, we are under the blessing of God. Stop putting up with what goes on in the world. You are set apart. You are in Goshen. You are not in Egypt. You're under the blood of Jesus. So don't don't invite the judgment of the world in your house with your mouth. So Balaam. So he couldn't curse them. So the king is still paying him money. He says, I got an idea. I can't curse them. The blessing is too strong. But what if we can stop the blessing from working? So he trains the king on how to tempt the Israelites to stop following God. So that king sends prostitutes into the camp, ones that the Israelites couldn't resist. Oh, he sends an army of whores, hoes, whoremongers, whatever you want to say, thoughts. He sends an army, and they fall for the trap, and the blessing stops working, and they begin to lose. Now, the thing is, Balaam was judged, because Joshua didn't play that. So when Joshua took into the promised land, they invaded that city, and one of the first people they killed was Balaam. So he says, these people... Go after the way of Balaam for gain. All they, they know what is right. They trade in what's right for money. And then he says they go after, they're perished in the gain saying of Kor or Korah. Korah is an interesting character because when you read in the book of Numbers, he comes to Moses and said, who do you think you are? And he, sounds, he says it really spiritual. Who do you think you are to lead Jehovah's people? Why do you think God would choose you? Who are you to be our leader and lift yourself over everybody else? I'm just as good as you. And the thing is, it wasn't just Korah. He had 250 famous people in the camp, princes among the people backing him. He had even two religious figures backing him. And Moses said, fine, we'll see tomorrow who God actually chooses. And Moses says, look, let's get this done real quickly. If you die a normal death, then God didn't send me. But if something new happens, if the earth just happens to open up and you fall in, I'm the one. And it says before Moses could finish saying those words, oh, boom, bang. They went to hell alive. 
Do you know what the word gainsaying means? Strife. What he tried to do, divide the people of God for his own glory. And he said they perished in that way. He said these people are infiltrated for their own glory. They're causing strife, but they're going to get the same reward. Notice what he goes on. and says, these are spots in your feast of charity. In the New Testament, they would get together and they would eat, they would celebrate, and they called them love feasts because they're supposed to be love people. So they're eating together, and these people are welcome there. They have chief seats. He says, God doesn't mind you guys getting together, having fun, eating together, walking in love towards each other. He says, but those people are spots. Notice, he didn't say the sinner was a spot, and the sinner didn't belong there. He said, these people who have infiltrated to bring you into subjection, to exploit you, teaching you not to live in grace, but turn into lasciviousness. They are spots. When I look at your fellowship time, I see spots. Feeding themselves without fear. They don't care. They don't think God's going to do nothing. Clouds, they are without water. Caring about of winds, they go back and forth. They're of no substance. Trees whose fruit withers without fruit. Their fruit does not remain. They're not abiding like John 15 teaches. Whatever they do will not last. Twice dead. Wait a minute. How can you be twice dead? Because you're dead in sins. Then you get born again. You're alive. But if you're twice dead, you left your salvation. You're like, is that possible? Yes, it is. Look at Hebrews chapter 6 real quick, and we'll come back here. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4. It says, for it is impossible for those who were once enlightened, meaning they knew the truth, have tasted of the heavenly gift. They were born again. Were many partakers of the Holy Ghost. They were filled with the Spirit. Have tasted the good word of God. These aren't baby Christians. They are mature in the things of God. They actually know what they're doing. And the powers of the world to come. They operated in the gifts of the Spirit. If they shall fall away, didn't mean if they trip up or make a mistake, if they're turning away, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh, they put them to open shame. God's saying, if they go that way, they are not coming back. John, who is the apostle of love, writes at the end of his letter, says, if you see those people, don't even pray for them. A group of people that love doesn't say pray for? Why? He says, don't pray for them, because it won't do any difference. They have hardened their heart. They don't want Jesus anymore. It's not that they made a mistake. It's not that they backslid. It's not that they tripped up. They made a conscious decision. They don't want Jesus anymore. 
How do they get to that place? It started with deception. They began to do whatever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it. They stayed there, lived that way, taught other people to do it. They kept going on and on and on. And says, we don't want Jesus anymore. And he's a gentleman, so he left. And after he left, a demon came in. It's not once saved, always saved. It'd be great if it was, but it's not the truth. Now, as I said from Hebrews 6, not everybody applies for that. But there are some, like Judas writing about, who have made a willful decision that they don't want Jesus anymore. And so they're going to judgment. I remember Dad Hagen wrote in his book, The Triumphant Church, when the Lord appeared to him and started talking to him about these things. And he said, even if people under the threat of persecution and losing their lives are harmed to their family, if they denied me, I would forgive them. If they were under that pressure and fell to that pressure, I would forgive them. But it says these people who go this way, they don't want forgiveness. At no point will they say, God, will you forgive me? They become like Pharaoh who hardens his heart. They become like the generation that lives under the Antichrist. That their judgment is deception. And they follow the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. Plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame. As often as the foam you see as an ocean goes on the sea floor, it's how often the shame keeps coming up. Wandering stars. Everybody thinks it's some great bright light. To whom is reserved the blackest of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these saying. Behold, the Lord comes with 10,000 of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches with ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Long story short, their judgment is coming. Enoch saw it at the beginning of the world. He saw the judgment at the end of the world. So he's telling them, don't think judgment doesn't exist. Says, judgment is coming. And these individuals will be judged. There are some who will never want to turn back. But then there are some in that group that could turn back. And next week, we'll teach you how Jude said you can get them. That they can be trapped up in this doctrine of doing whatever they want, however they want. But Jude says, I got a two-fold strategy to get them out. But we'll get into that next Wednesday. So stand to your feet. Before we go, like Abraham interceded, the Lord wants us to take some time to intercede for a specific group of people, people living within Cobb and within our area that are about to experience judgment. They have lived a lifestyle, they have sowed seeds, and harvest is coming very soon to them. But if we pray for them tonight, it will give them more time to turn, and their sin won't catch up with them. So we are to pray for them tonight. And then after that, we are to pray for our nation. 
Because if God would have spared the Israelites and Sodom and Gomorrah, he'll spare America. People think, well, judgment has to come to America. Let me tell you why judgment doesn't have to come to America. You're here. And more than 50 righteous people in this room. You keep America from being destroyed. But whether experience is the best of God or less of God is a part of the prayers of his people and their lifestyle. So we're going to take some time to pray right now and intercede for those within our area who are about to run into judgment. And so you can walk and pray where you are. You can come to the altar and pray. But I want you to intercede for them just like they are your family members because they could be your family members. And the thing is, somebody prayed for you before you were born again. Someone prayed for you when you were lost. We need to do the same thing, that we love people enough that we will take time to pray for them. Are you ready to pray for them? But I want you to pray like you actually believe God's going to touch their heart, like they're going to turn, like he will grant them more time, because he will if you ask. So I'm going to leave prayer from up here, but if you want, I want you, if you can pray in the Holy Ghost, to pray in the Holy Ghost. If not, ask for mercy in English or your native language. So let's pray. Father, we come to you right now. In the mighty name of Jesus. I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.